Ahoy, ahoy. Hi. My wife is watching TV. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering what she was watching. <laughs> I'll, I'll ever turn it off. Oh, there's my problem. Oh. No, I've, I'm just cleaning up my trackball here, and it's full of dust. <laughs> wow. Are we recording this conversation in 1989? <laughs> oh, man. Look at all that. Whoa. You know, there's something really satisfying about getting all the dust out of your trackball. Oh, man. I, I have to say, the millennials will have no idea what you're talking about. Have you ever taken the ball? Oh, oh, God. Oh. Yeah, that's pretty revolting. It, it, oh, wow. You can buy replacement balls, depending on the model of trackball you've got, that will actually work with billiard balls. Yeah, I bet. I, uh, no, this is a Logitech. There we go. Jesus Christ. Well, I can, I'm going to save that in this sweater. Oh, man. Yeah, you, you have like 800 dogs. Ah, uh, there we go. Oh, man, that's so slick now. Oh. oh. Now it's working because I was going into, you know, my, my system preferences and trying to figure out why is my mouse moving slower? Oh, there we go. Oh, look, at it. it's just so slick now. This is great. <laughs> oh, wow. That was crazy. Yeah, sure was. Johnny, are you with us? Sure am. Uh, Alan's just spent the last 10 minutes cleaning his trackball, and that's not a euphemism. <laughs> Let me just tell my wife to ta stop uh, uh, watching her uh, real estate shows. Hey, sweetie! <laughs> stop watching your real estate shows. <laughs> okay, there we go. All right. Is this live? No. It was, well, no. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. All right, step by. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Any night of the week, we look at the Toronto music scene with author Johnny Dovercourt. From the 1950s through to the 2000s, we'll talk to the writer, musician, and show organizer about the past and the future. Plus, a blast from the techie past gets its balls cleaned. Well, one ball. Well, that's all it has. <laughs> that's, yeah. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Yeah, I don't know if you caught an email, but you were required to uh, have a beverage with you for I, the show. I, I read that with great, great interest and immediately um, fulfilled that request. Good. All right, just what are you working on? Some good old-fashioned H2O. Oh. No, no, no. Already you've got the spirit of this whole thing yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah, for a sex, drugs, and rock and roll type of guy. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's um. I don't know. That doesn't really. That doesn't really work anymore, does it? That whole. Uh, I I was just gonna say, sex, drugs, and rock and roll in your forties a very different experience. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It is. Obviously, I would. I, I have. I have a nice cognac. Yeah, that sounds good. Which is not. Ex well, yeah, that's kind of you know that's you know it's kind of dope in a hip hop sort of way. If you guys are drinking, I'll pour myself a glass of bourbon. There we go. See, I've got a dirty vodka martini. Oh, you and your stupid dirty vodka martini. Give me a sec, for oh. real. I, I, All right, well, stand, we'll I stand get by. In the mood here, okay? Hang on. Let's go. All I'm right, still, here we go. I'm still, ex I'm still examining this dust that I pull out of my, my trackball. I'm really impressed. You must be one of these guys who's into the uh, pimple popping videos too. It's the equivalent of it. That's that's for sure. Mm. There's just this feeling of satisfaction that I managed to repair my trackball. 
clean up my studio a little bit and have something that I can play with during this podcast. Oh, good for you, because yeah, you know, I think what that is is there's a psychological connection there. Uh, the idea being, wow, he's really going to town on the ice, isn't he? Well, listen, I I understand. You, it depends on the bourbon. You need uh, you need a s- substantial amount of ice to cut through. Yeah, I, I think when you clean something like that, th- there's a sort of a psychological benefit. You sort of feel like while your world may be falling apart, at least you fixed this. Yes. You know what? I had a I had a rough day today. Uh, there was just a, a number of things that depressed me. It had nothing, no, no, nothing to do with you. Nothing to do with with anything important. It's just that a bunch of things just kind of made me down, mm. and uh, that's fine. Yeah, I hear you. So, and now I have a little measure of control over my uh, the cursor on my screen because it's so fast now. Wow, this is great. Um, cheers. There we yeah. go. There we go. Cheers. Excellent. You can Thanks hear for that uh, clinking of. Oh, we did. We counted the we we counted the cubes hitting the glass. <laughs> you can hear that from Russell. Oh yeah, nice. That's that's excellent. Good good uh, Apple microphone. Fantastic. Amber Healy, GeeksandBeats.com, reports that music fans in Toronto can easily club and hall hop on any given night and see a lineup of incredible homegrown and internationally known bands from tiny rooms to a major arena, but that wasn't the case even 50 years ago. Uh, Johnny Dovercourt is the author of a new book, Any Night of the Week, on the evolving music scene in Toronto from the 1950s through the early 2000s. Now, he says rock bands were playing tiny coffee houses in Yorkville, but he had been immersed in the local music scene since he was a kid. In the 90s, he was a musician, a writer, a show organizer. He grew up in the big smoke and always wanted to uh, focus more on that music as it was made locally. He joins us now from what I can only assume is Toronto. That's correct. Little Portugal. Oh, that's exactly where you would be if you were uh, dialed into the music scene. Well, and with a surname like mine as well. I didn't. Now that you pointed out, yes. So <laughs> I want to go all the way back to the 1950s when Toronto was Toronto the good and Toronto the boring. Yeah. When was it? Oh God, I can't remember now. Where men and women were required to drink in separate rooms. I think that lasted up until 1969, actually, or at least Jeez. The, the the yeah gender enforced segregation of of licensed living rooms. And I think that was one of the things that contributed to, to Yorkville being such a hot, a hot spot in the sixties was because uh, these rules didn't apply to coffee houses. No, you could have men and women hanging out together as long as they didn't have officially booze. Exactly. And if I recall the sixties correctly in Yorkville of the era, um, if you weren't drinking, you were most likely getting high. Oh yeah. There was definitely a lot of uh, drugs making the, uh, the rounds of those few blocks in the, in the middle 60s there there was also a rule that lasted for a very long time probably maybe even into the 1970s is that you couldn't get a drink without having something to eat with it yeah there was a lot of really bizarre arcane um lcbo rules that uh, lasted a lot longer than anyone would expect and and i think there was one and correct me on this if you know anything about it you couldn't serve beer or beverages out of a pitcher. So what bars would do is take a picture, uh, take a picture, uh, get a uh, a big file, and file off the spout of the pitcher, 
which would mean that it was no longer a pitcher and you could legally serve beer in it. <laughs> it was a pale o beer. Yes. <laughs> if anybody knows anything about that, I heard that once from somebody and I thought, wow, what a what a loophole. Well, this is I, that's just a perfect Toronto workaround. We were great at like uh, finding the ways to work around these silly rules. You've got to get people lubricated. Exactly. And the 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 live music scene here is so dependent on alcohol. What's weird is that uh, that Yorkville era at the '60s with the coffee house scene was kind of a blip. It's like sort of one of the only era, time periods where the music scene wasn't dependent on booze. Yeah, and it was it was very short. It was like 24 months before the cops moved in and shut the whole place down. Yeah, it wasn't for, it wasn't very long. You know, it was sort of yeah, two two or three years. But let's go back to the 1950s. Uh, Young Street was the place to be. Yeah, it was this really um, wild scene. It was the first real concentration of music venues um, in the city was the Young Street Strip, which uh, sort of happened actually after, started to happen after the legalization of cocktail bars in 1948. So you had uh, the Colonial Tavern and booking jazz groups. And then a bit later, you had um, uh, venues like Le Coq d'Or booking early rock and roll and R&B and um, and these places uh like at first were booking mostly cover bands and you had um uh groups coming from out of town like ronnie hawkins and the hawks and um uh, a bit later it wasn't really until a few years later that original music started to be really heard heard in these in these places but what the what was exciting i think to the, the torontonians at the time is this is that all this music was just so new and uh like no one had ever heard anything like the kind of raw rockabilly that Ronnie Hawkins and the Hawks was, was bringing to the Young Street Strip in 1958. So where were the hotspots in Toronto? There was the Young Street Strip. We talked about Yorkville. Were there any other parts of town where people gathered to listen to music? The main overarching story of my book is how the music scene migrated through these different neighborhoods. How it, it's it started on Young Street and then it kind of migrated up to, to Yorkville. And those two things were happening in parallel. And then in, and at first there was a separation because uh, Young Street was boozy and rock and roll and R&B. Uh, Yorkville was was coffee houses and folk and jazz. And then um, by about 66, there started to be more sort of stylistic crossover. And then um, <clears throat> for the Yorkville thing, after Yorkville is basically destroyed almost intentionally by the by the city in order to, to, to make way for more pro-business development in, uh, in the late 60s. And after that, the music scene was sort of almost sort of lost for a while. There wasn't really a sort of concentrated hotspot for the first half of the 70s, except for there was this sort of short-lived period um, where things were happening on Spadina, uh, when the Elmo um, <clears throat> first opened as a, Elmo Combo first opened as a rock club in 72. And uh, Grossman's Tavern was a really happening scene in the early '70s, um, and uh, and Young's but Young Street had this sort of second life that came uh, again, sort of booking cover bands and uh, uh, these union-controlled bars, and yeah, cool bands came out of this out of the '70s hard rock scene like Rush and Max Webster, but really all that kind of laid the groundwork for Queen West starting up um, in '76 when when punk rock started to take hold. And really it's with the, the, uh, you know, the punk rock explosion and the kind of shape of the music scene uh, that we know it really started to take hold because Queen West kind of became the New Yorkville in a way. It became this community oriented hub for original music taking place in bars. Um, 
and bars rather than coffee houses. But yeah, it had this sort of commu- community, neighborhoody feel where originality and creativity was really, really valued. And uh, and that sort of started with punk in the late seventies, and really, re- but really, really took off in the in the early eighties when you had the Camera House and the Rivoli and the Bamboo and the Horse and the and the the current edition of the Horseshoe Tavern as we know it now, um, and as well as some other. Uh, oh, X X rays. Yeah, X X rays. The well, this the ultra ultrasound that opened in the nineties. Yes. So really, like the Queen West strip, uh, really kind of like solidified the live music circuit as we know it now for original music, like ho- original homegrown music. And hang on, back up. Help me understand this. The Horseshoe Tavern. It, this is you said the original Horseshoe Tavern. Is that not the original? Well, it went through, there's a few different eras of the Horseshoe Tavern. It's the same place that it has been, it's been, it's been open since 1948, but it actually, um, the Horseshoe uh, in its first incarnation was, it was a country, a country and Western hall. And that's where Stomp and Tom Connors recorded his famous live album in 73, 74, maybe across this land. And then, um, and then the Gary started booking it as a as a punk and new wave venue in 1978, and that only lasted nine months. And but that was sort of the almost some of the most storied nine months of live music booking in Toronto's history. And that and that um, uh, basically ended with the last Pogo, which was the the final uh, punk show that they booked at the Horseshoe. And then after that, kind of um, the Queen West punk thing kind of died away for a few years, or the new wave thing died away on Queen West for a, for a few years, and the Horseshoe went back to Book and Country, and that lasted a few years. And then, I think in 1982, it turned, it changed its name, and the Horseshoe became known as Stagger Lee's. Oh yeah, and was sort of like a 50s theme restaurant. <laughs> yeah, with like a checkerboard, um, a checkerboard tablecloths and waiters and sl- with slick back hair. And uh, but that didn't last long, and I think that uh, the then the new owners, the current owners, bought uh, took it over then, and the, after that, and then um, brought it back to life as a horseshoe, renovated it, put the stage where it is now, put it in the front bar, and the most important thing they did actually was bring in this new booking system, like the door bar split, and that's really where uh, it put a lot of power in the hands of local of. of local musicians to put on their own shows. What do you mean? So if you're a local band now and you want to book a show at whatever the garrison or, um, or any other sort of club of that size or what few of them are left. Um, usually how it works is you take the door and the bar takes the bar, the door bar split, the venue sells booze. That's how they make money. And the, the, the band or the promoter gets to sell tickets or charge cover. And that's how, we make money and it's a very kind of this separation of church and state and that was actually the innovation a booking innovation that the horseshoe brought in in around 1984. you mean generally speaking venues didn't do that until the horseshoe did it yeah before then it was uh <clears throat> things had to be uh, done through the musicians union or 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 through booking agents hmm. that was a real sort of game changer for local musicians you weren't being hired by the bar to you know, play cover songs that people recognize so they would drink. And a, and a big part of that was the Tuesday Night New Music Night with Dave Bookman. So that started uh, uh, 10 years later. And that was um, like by that point, you know, that's that whole the Queen West scene was very well established. So by the time and um, so at that point, you know, this like the local indie music scene had really been growing for a good 10 to 15 years. 
um, where there's this just a mass of amazing, talented local bands and a lot of a lot of hopefuls, a lot of suburban hopefuls coming out of the woodwork and um, with the with the, the new music nights like uh, Dave Bookman, R.I.P. He um, him and Craig Lasky and the other people who ran, who were started booking the Horseshoe in the '90s. They really created the space for um, for emerging locals to be heard on Tuesday nights. It was it was a great kind of um, uh, it was a great night out for people because it was free. It was no cover. You could see four bands um, for 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 uh, for for local bands. It was a great opportunity to kind of strut your stuff and and uh, play the Horseshoe Tavern. And if that went well, you could get booked onto bigger shows. But but really, uh, do you guys remember Elvis Monday? Yes. Where was that at the Cameron house? So so Elvis and Elvis Monday to me was kind of like the heart of the kind of the indie music scene. And that's really, and the, the, when new music night started, it was kind of like the, uh, you know, uh, like the set piece, like the, the companion piece to, uh, to Elvis Monday. So Elvis Monday started at the Beverly and it moved around a lot. It moved, uh, William knew was the guy who booked it. He was the singer of groovy religion, really amazing a uh, tall dude with dreadlocks with the, this cool deep voice and William knew, you know, so, so many bands, everyone owes William knew so much because he really uh, booked so many local, but gave, gave so many local bands, our first gigs. He gave my high school band, our first gig when we were hmm. 16 and we thought it was so cool. It was at a place called the soup club, uh, which uh, was also called the slither. One of the many homes of Elvis Monday and uh, it smelled like a sewage leak because I think there had been a sewage leak. <laughs> I remember uh, doing uh, what I'd call the uh, Edge concert update at 10 to 4 every day when I was doing Afternoons on the Edge. Mm-hmm. And I would go through a very long list of bands that were playing in the various clubs around town at night. And, you know, there was there was Clinton's Rest in Peace, which just closed last week. Yeah. Uh, there was, of course, the Horseshoe and the Elma Combo and the Rivoli and the Bamboo. But then there were all these other places uh, that, that don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah, for sure. In a way, if you kind of chart the, where Elvis Monday went, it was kind of like this. It was this real, to me, like that's sort of, like I say, I, I really like to try and get to the heart of the, of the music scene. Like, what's the kind of home base? Like, where... Where are the exciting new bands all playing and gathering and meeting and uh, that social where that social community aspect is happening? And if you actually follow El McCon- uh, sorry Elvis Mondays, it went from the Beverly Tavern, I think it was at the Cabana Room briefly, and then it was at the Silver Dollar. Oh, there's an- another place that's that's gone for the time being. Gone, gone for the time being, and that was this um, amazing like late 80s version iteration of the of the silver dollar that i didn't even know about because i was too young but like skinny puppy did a tuesday night residency there and did they really <laughs> when El- elliot lefko was booking it oh yeah, yeah. that makes sense <laughs> and, and um and then and then william new booked he actually moved um he moved elvis mondays to my personal favorite lost you know dear departed fondly remembered departed uh, defunct music venue, which was actually 1150 Queen Street West. Wait, that's that's the Drake, right? That's the Drake. It's currently the Drake Underground, but in from 1991 to 93, it was known as 1150 Queen Street West. I think we we called it the 1150. Some people called it under the Drake. Some people just called it the Drake, and uh, that was the real cool spot in the early 90s in the grunge era or the sort of early days of lo-fi indie. 
And uh, so for me, this is for me at that age, being in my late teens and just kind of really starting to get into the local music scene. That's where I saw all these amazing bands like Change of Heart. I, I was just going to ask if Change of Heart played there. I th- they released Smile there. Right. OK. Change of Heart, King Cobb Steely, um, Grasshopper, Flag Camp who was a really important band, a band that was important to me that uh, are profiled in my book. Um, and so for me, for the, for me writing this book, it was getting to what was exciting was to get to actually write about venues like the 1150, which are completely forgotten about for the most part. And, um, and like, there's, you know, you really have to dig, dig deep to find anything about them. And, uh, and bands like Flake Camp, who were super important at the time, but have also kind of been forgotten. Um, you know, you can, you can find a live recording of theirs on CBC on Spotify, but that's about it. But there's not, you know, the, the internet trail is, is pretty thin. Can I go through some other venues? Yeah, for sure. Um, the Copa and the Diamond. The Copa and the Diamond. Um, yeah, I'm, I talk about them a little bit in my book. Um, Denise Benson uh, covers those those venues a lot more extensively in her book, Then and Now, um, which covers club culture. And um, I those venue those clubs were before a bit before my time. I knew. I mean, the Diamond became the Phoenix. Yeah. So, uh, and I think that it was basically kind of the same format though a bit more of a dance club but um what was i think what was neat about those places that they were combination live and dj clubs they had concerts but they also had dj nights um the copa was in yorkville in the 80s when it was becoming you know home of of yuppies when yuppies were new you know yeah that that place really stuck out uh, stuck out yeah uh, I remember going to see something like a Bauhaus cover band there or something. It just didn't really work. Yeah. You know? How about, um, oh, the Gasworks and, and uh, Rock and Roll Heaven, which were two places on Young Street. Yeah, I don't really go into those those places too much in my book. I mean, like my book is a DIY history of new music. Oh, sorry, DIY history of music in Toronto. And definitely there's a, you know, I'll admit there's a bit of an indie, independent underground music bias. And, um, and I couldn't really cover everything. So I know that those those places were really, really important to the hard rock and metal scenes and like no disrespect to them, but um, it was a completely different scene and kind of its own thing. Right. And then that's totally cool. One, one last question here. Why is everything, almost everything. I mean, we can look at the Phoenix, we can look at the opera house and a few other places. Why is everything West of young? That's a really great question. Great question. I think that the East, East end is always East side of Toronto has always been more residential um, and it just, it just never developed the kind of the big commercial strips like Queen West. I'll tell you exactly why. Oh yeah. Cause every major university and college is West of Young Street. That's what I was going to say next. That's where the kids are. Except for, except for Ryerson. Which is on Young Street. On Young Street. Yeah. On the east side <laughs> yeah, of Young. Exactly. So yeah, the kids, the kids are all West of Young. Um, I think you also had just more neighborhoods that, that were more conducive to a kind of village feeling like Yorkville or Kensington Market or the Queen West Strip. Um, I think that uh, the East the East End, the, the closest you have to that is uh, the Danforth um, or bits of Queen East. But there's kind of nothing like Kensington Market or, yeah, there's no U of T, there's no OCAD. Um, the, like there's, yeah, there's not the, the concentration of the kids and, and it's just it's just always been more 
um, more for a family oriented kind of place. Nothing, there's anything wrong with that. Maybe that's, maybe that's where all the new venues should start opening because families need to go see, go out see live music together as well. Well, here, here's the problem is that in the downtown core in Toronto, it's so vital in terms of gentrification. Yeah. You're, all the artists are being forced out and all the, you know, I, I talked to a lot of bar owners and they're, you know, they're just looking at their, their landlords uh, thinking, how long is it going to be before somebody makes you an offer that you can't refuse? And next thing you know, a 24 story condo goes up. Yeah. And that's an, like a point I end, I end my book on is that uh, Toronto has been very lucky because we have a handful of venues that are actually owned by businesses that love music. Like the horseshoe, the horseshoe owns the horseshoe. The Rivoli owns the Rivoli. The Rex owns the Rex. Um, the Cameron House is owned by family members who love music and have actually passed on the booking to the next generation. Like the kids, the the guys that book the Cameron House are the kids of the people who bought the Cameron House in 1981, and it's ownership by the community that makes these places last. Yeah, Lee's Palace, I think, would be part of that too, wouldn't it? Well, Lee's got bought by the Horseshoe. Oh, that's right. right. So they, so, so, so exactly, and they were smart, and the Horseshoe were smart, and they, they, they were smart enough to to buy these beautiful buildings and make sure that they, you know, that they they stay in the community. Johnny Dovercourt is the author of the new book "Any Night of the Week" on the evolving music scene in Toronto from the '50s through to the 2000s. He joined us from Little Portugal. Thank you for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks, guys. Guests of Geeks and Beats stay at the luxurious Trump Hotel in downtown Toronto because when you think class, you think Trump. All right, 38 patrons, and it's got me wondering if maybe we need to do something to boost that number. Yeah, we really can't. I mean, God bless those 38 people, but it's uh, we're still paying off the Vegas trip, aren't we? Uh, but we do want to say thank you to Adrian Bashford, uh, Alyssa Sang, uh, Anthony Fole, Antoinette Vanden Dickenberg, Blake and uh, Trish Limberger, uh, Craig Aiken, Craig, Craig Glassford, C. Scott, Dan Rosen, uh, among others, on PayPal meantime, where we um, pull a, a, a buck off your credit card every single week, whether we put out an episode or not. Rob Rimmer, Jeremy Porter, Craig Manette, Scott Coates, Christopher Hazen, Grant Ridge, Greg David, Robin Calder, Chris Kite, Kevin Button, John Lynch, Paul Nade, Mike Benninger, Crystal Brown, John, Helen Murray, Cameron Galbraith, Dave Dubas, to the board. Thank you, sir. Yes, please. Keep it coming. One idea. Mm. People have been telling me they want to see the show as we make the sausages. Uh, again? And not not an, on an again basis. Not like we're going to do the show live from somewhere. We're going to do it, you know, as a one-off. Every single week, maybe just those who are supporting the show get a top secret link so they can watch the show live. Oh. Maybe even ask questions. Okay, so maybe what we need is a chat room. Kind of like a chat room, but with our faces on it as well. Okay, all right. You, what do you think? See if you can find something, I'll, I'm in. Well, we got all the gear necessary to make that happen. But I'm not leaving my house. But you're not leaving your house. No, so it's got to be something that can integrate webcams. Exactly. Yes. Although I do have a meeting on the idea that maybe you and I mm. could get ourselves a studio space. <sighs> then I'll have to leave my house. Then you have to put pants on. I know. I know. I don't like putting pants on. 
Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter, Facebook, and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.